Coming up on Tech Nation, a reflection on life today. How well are we doing with all those tech devices around us? Against that backdrop, New York Times journalist Matt Richtel talks about life today and his latest novel, Dead on Arrival. Then on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft examines the reality and the potential of using drones in healthcare. If there's a disaster and you can't get medical supplies, they begin to look very, very good. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Alvin Toffler taught us about society and the giant waves of technology that affect it. He said the first wave was agriculture, which clearly changed the nature of society. The second wave started in the 1820s with the Industrial Revolution, and massive industrialization changed how we lived individually and collectively. Then the third wave started in the 1950s, what we now might call the information age. But these enormous waves say nothing about the mini waves. It's like looking at a global weather system, but missing a tiny microclimate in a valley tucked away by happenstance protected or unduly exposed. It could be argued that there are mini waves of technology all the time, especially now. We can see it, and not just over generations or in a lifetime, but in a matter of years or even months. A technology can rise, make its impact, and then fall, replaced by another technology, and a new order takes over, just like that. I'm thinking of the recent rise of Uber and Lyft and the like, paralyzing the traditional taxi industry. And now we're seeing pilot testing of driverless cars in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And by who? Why Uber? There's currently a driver present, but you know technology. It always gets better, faster, and cheaper. In my mind, there are two factors here, and both are larger than Lyft and more ubiquitous than Uber. The first factor is that everybody needs a job. Everybody needs to pay the bills, to have meaningful employment, and hopefully feel safe. On the other hand, this change is brought about by technology. We as engineers work hard to replace and improve many of the activities that humans do. Well, that runs counter to everyone having a job. Think of the massive server farms large tech companies are now building in more affordable sites across the United States. They're investing billions, and there is certainly construction labor at the start. But the jobs for when they go into operation? Well, how many people do you need to run a large server farm that just keeps humming along? Relatively few. I know people who live in former coal towns, former railroad hubs, former mill towns, former anythings, that the wave of technology has passed by. They need jobs just like everybody needs jobs. 
and a report from the President's Council of Economic Advisors tells us that 80% of the jobs which pay $20 per hour or less can be automated. So you can't say that the White House doesn't know about this. In engineering, it ain't a problem until we say it's a problem. And the tricky truth of it is, only problems get solved. So we all need to think about this. As engineers, it never feels like we're asked to create more jobs, but we should be. And not just any jobs, meaningful jobs. We like to say that all this technology creates other jobs, but how many? And we tell students that the job that they will have 10 years from now probably doesn't exist today. What we mean is that there will be a new job for them that they can't imagine now. But in fact, we might be right. It might not exist then. I've been wondering if we can solve this or whether it's just not possible. It's just in the nature of technology or whether it's actually solvable. In the meantime, let's get cracking, at least for now. We've defined the problem. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Matt Richtel, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist with the New York Times, he covers science, technology, and business. We'll talk about his latest novel, Dead on Arrival. Then on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft examines the reality and the potential for drones in healthcare. New York Times journalist Matt Richtel has written many books, both fiction and nonfiction alike. Today he's here with his latest novel, Dead on Arrival. Matt, welcome back to Tech Nation. Thank you, Moira. You know, you're my preferred kind of novelist because you're a journalist. Of course, I love journalists, um, which means you spend a lot of your day, you know, getting the story right, getting the facts, getting other people's perspectives. So, you know, I can I can count on you getting background material. And then you put your novelist hat on and you spin a yarn. It's actually a, a, a pretty nice dovetail. Well, I, I, I really wonder how the novelists do it who don't get to spend all day collecting substance. I mean, I really wonder. They, they have much more – they have much more better imaginations. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. More bigger. <laughs> more bigger. <laughs> I like that. Well, you know, I, I'm, I was just thinking you cover science, technology, and business and, and, it, and its impact and interrelationship. When you're a journalist – you and you're writing a story. People don't realize that you have to look for completeness. What's the, what's the whole thing behind here? You don't write everything you know in the story. It's a bigger, it's a it's a bigger circle around it. But if you just need to refer to something, you could do a little Wikipedia, a little Google search, and kind of insert it in your in your story. But you actually don't get all the nuance and all the effect. Yeah. 
I mean, look, I've spent uh, we just talked about this before we went on the air and I can't talk about it yet. But I spent the I've spent all of this year working on a series of stories for The Times that will launch a science centric story on uh, mid-September, probably before this runs. Um, the upshot of it being there is so much that winds up on the cutting room floor and the way that context gets created is by spending those 10,000 hours, if you will, to be boiled down to a few sentences. But you can't get the few sentences without the 10,000 hours, not the few sentences that count. Now, the other thing that's interesting about being a journalist is you don't break away in the middle and sort of like throw your opinion around. But when you write a novel, you can introduce a couple of different characters and they can have lots to say. I remember when the Times hired me and they realized they were hiring someone who wrote novels and other things. And they said, God, we, you know, we have to think about this a little bit because you're not supposed to have opinions. And I said, well, it's not me, Moira. It's my characters who are having opinions. (laughs) Um, So I should say there will be many spots here in this interview, in particular with this book, which has a lot of um, sensational aspects to it, where I have fully removed my journalist hat my journalist um, undies, my journalist socks and shoes. You're getting the naked novelist today. <laughs> yeah, and you know, we have that journalist outfit on, so but yes. you're, I'm, I'm interviewing you today. You're fully clothed. It's radio. People can't. They can't tell. They can't Just tell. imagine what you like, people. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm no, incredibly well built. No, do not do that. <laughs> Well, let's give folks the basic story here. Maybe we could just start out with the opening scene. Oh, you want me? I'll start with the opening scene. All right, yeah. here I go. Look, um, an airplane lands in a desolate airport in Colorado, Steamboat Springs, the airport's called Hayden. The pilot and co-pilot are having trouble getting any communications. They land and notice something extraordinary has happened at the airport. And moments later, an infectious disease doctor who's asleep at the back of the plane is awakened and asked to come forward to the cockpit. And he is not only bedeviled at why he's going in, but just confused generally because he's put himself to sleep with Benadryl. He's dealing with a lot of challenges. He's entered into the cockpit. He sits with the pilot and co-pilot says, what's the problem? The pilot flicks on the lights and outside on the tarmac and in the little building are bodies. And she turns off the light and she says, everybody not on this airplane is dead and thus begins dead on arrival. Whoa, it does begin (laughs) that way. And now I'm not actually going to ask you a lot more about the story, but I am going to ask you about themes that uh, we can pluck out of the the middle of the book, you know, that uh, that really are about today. I mean, we get some insight in Dead and Arrival uh, into uh, all the media consumed on all the smartphones and tablets and computers and cable channels. It's consumed everywhere. You write, with all these devices, People are gorging on ideas that reinforce their political and social views. They're getting instant reminders when someone has affronted these precious perspectives. And all the while, they're so face down in their gadgets, they're losing their ability to empathize, cooperate, and compromise. So 
here's this infectious disease doctor, and he's got to discover what has happened in the two hours while this plane is in the air. The world has transformed. And without giving too much away, what you've just read begins to get at a major twist in this book that differentiates it from, say, your traditional medical thriller. And so can I just sort of slowly lay out the world that was unfolding as I was writing this book? And it'll dovetail with what you've read. Moira, we are at a point of historic partisanship, not seen since the Civil War. And I'm going to give you a stat I just love. The year is 1960. Republicans and Democrats are asked, how unhappy will they be if their son or daughter marries someone from the other party? What's your guess as to the percent of Republicans and Democrats who are unhappy? Well, since actually some friends of mine, uh, they they are in different parties, and the 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 re- resulting families just think that it's the worst thing that ever <laughs> happened, and they apparently didn't discover it until the last presidential election. <laughs> I would say ninety two percent in in nineteen sixty. Oh, in nineteen sixty. In nineteen sixty. Oh, in nineteen sixty, forty percent. Five percent. Five percent. Now, listen, listen to 1960. We've come out of the Red Scare. Nixon and Kennedy have gone head to head in an election that either you think Kennedy won or that his dad paid for. I don't know. (laughs) But look, it was tight, 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 as tight as it's ever been. We're on the cusp of civil rights. We're heading into Vietnam. We've got special advisors over there. We're headed into assassinations, the likes of which this country hasn't seen. And it's only 5%. 2008, similar polls taken. What's your guess as to the number? Oh, that's 10 years ago. Oh, 2008, maybe 70%. Okay, so it's 30 and 50%. I believe 30 was for Democrats, 50 was for Republicans, but something like that. Now, here's the question I want to ask you. Are we more, in your view... Are the problems we face more pronounced than they were in 1960? Oh, yeah. I think they're far more complex. More complex? Are they real? You Really? Well, really. I think we can have a good debate about this, but let me hear yeah, it. I think, they're, I, I think that the, the, the problems are more complex. The solutions have to be complex. Understanding them have to be complex. It's just we've got a lot more people. We've got a lot more data. We've got a lot more things that we do. So you're saying more chaotic. Well, it could be chaotic. It's just there's a lot more to it. All right. Well, let's let's agree that at the least that there's a good debate that can be had about whether things are so much more problematic than they were that it would justify Republicans and Democrats disliking each other this much more. Because let me just give you one other data point. There's a thermometer um, number that's used to assess how Democrats and Republicans feel about each other. And it's been used for decades. And the the way it works is 100 on the thermometer means that you feel warmly toward the other party. And for the first time ever, last year, the most frequent number given was zero. Oh, yeah. So the point I'm making here. And and it sounds like we have some disagreement on this, and that's awesome because it's radio, and I am and I am very well built. <laughs> Has no relevance because um, <laughs> we're not welcome, wrestling. Welcome to our show. <laughs> 
the irrelevant show. Yes, go on. <laughs> but look, we I think we can agree to disagree that the problems are more complex. I don't know. I think Vietnam, civil rights, McCarthyism, all that stuff is at least on the verge of very powerful, powerful stuff. Whether or not we're that much more, um, we have that much more troubling issues today, what we do have is way more hostility. Now, you should read your book, you know. <laughs> because heard, hey, Moira, you should I've read heard, the stuff you write in the New York Times. I've heard good things about it. <laughs> I haven't read it, but as I've been of, told. As of yet, not from you. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I've got that down at the end here. I'll let right. you know. So, so, but look, I... I think we have to ask what's happening. I mean, in the book, yes. again, without giving too much away, the context for this book is this unzipping of civility. And I think we have to ask why it's happening. I'm speaking with New York Times science and technology journalist Matt Richtel. We're talking about many things, including his novel, Dead on Arrival. And so before I take a crack at this, again, wearing my novelist hat and not speaking for the New York Times or my own reporting here, what is your thought about why we have hit this point of historic hostility and partisanship? I think it's it's present in your book and, and part of what I just read. I think it's that we have so much information all the time now. You can find whatever it is, is your opinion or worldview, and it will be reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. Um, you can turn away from it, but we have 24-7, uh, for instance, cable news, and now there is no 24-hour news cycle. It's just a constant feed of a news cycle. And uh, if you don't like the lack of civility, uh, in some of these cases, uh, you can find another uh, a, a place to go, another another thing to listen to or to read or to view. But there has been with this information and coupled with the confrontation, you're wrong, you're something's wrong with you, you don't understand, you're, you know, that has all been permitted to be, uh, continue on. So that has created uh, reservoirs for partisanship that never happened before. So, so first, let me let me reinforce um, that with a, a statistic that I think is really powerful. In 2016, I believe, Americans on average listened or watched or consumed 72.5 billion minutes per week of news media. And that was up 16% from the year prior. But here's where I'm wrestling with something, Moira, genuinely. And I and maybe we can figure this out. But <laughs> that alone doesn't explain the problem to me. And here's why. Transparency was supposed to be the lifeblood of democracy. So... You go back to the most basic premise of our system, and that is if you get more information, that it's going to allow you to make better decisions. And before you say yes, but a lot of the information is nonsense or opinion or whatever, let me let me remind myself, because I am wrestling with this, I can't remember which Supreme Court justice it was, maybe Frankfurter or Holmes, but somebody said the answer to Bad speech is more speech. So we have transparency. He was, wrong. <laughs> he was wrong. We have transparency. Why isn't it working? Again, I have some thoughts, but what's your why isn't it working? 
Well, that this is very interesting. Let me find this. Uh, let me find this. This quote. One of your characters listens to a well-known radio host, whom we won't name here, um, but uh, he says. You had to find somebody you could trust in a world where there was just too much to think about. So it's not just one radio host. It's who says what. You start to believe who. It's We've always had it that way. If Walter Cronkite said it, it was true. But there was only one Walter Cronkite, and you better even be there at the time to listen to it come over the radio or come over the television, rather, and... We have people saying, that's fake, that's not fake, you're the enemy of the people, hello, fellow enemy of the people here. You know, who do you believe? And that one, that sounds like a natural tendency here. Yes. And that means that not only are people creating incorrect facts, incorrect analysis, incorrect um, opinion, um, but other people are believing it. And it's what people believe that make the difference in their actions. So, look, I mean, w- what you're getting at is something that just intrinsically thrills me to pursue and think about in everything I write, for better or worse, is what's really driving us? What's the primitive instinct? Because it's it's easy to blame whether it's technology, whether it's the this leader, whether it's something else. But there's some some things inside of us that are being played to. And I just want to I want to I want to. Um, sort of piggyback on what you just said. Look at what's happened to us over, say, the last century. In theory, so many things have gone so well. We can feed ourselves. We're not starving. We have antibiotics that um, spare us the lowest hanging fruit. We are living longer other than the opioid crisis right now. And I don't mean to diminish that, but we're living longer year after year after year. We the poverty, at least in this country, is nothing like the poverty in Cuba, in, you know, places in Africa I've been. I mean, we have a lot of good things. But but why hasn't that made us happier on the whole? In the very same breath, we are switching churches more often. We are searching for me as a measure of searching for meaning that is escalating and escalating. Could it be, Moira, that the more things that get better the more tense we feel about the lack of what we know. And so we are grappling with and grasping at things for trust, meaning, and answers. Well, I, 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 I can understand that. But I think that, uh, for me, a simpler explanation is that in this crazy world, and it's always been crazy. Yes. You know, life is crazy. Yes. In this crazy world... We like to have some sense of control, of calm, yes. of and there's nowhere to hide today. Yes. Uh, just in the last three weeks, we've had random killings around the globe that you can't avoid coming in. And, and by the way, those random killings were probably there, but the coming in part is what you just mentioned. And I, actually, I tend to really agree with what you just said. It's as if... The chaos that was always there has become hit such a decibel level that it really makes you gives you the urge to cling to something. 
Who who would have heard about Norway or you know who would have heard about these things? You wouldn't have heard, but it would be relegated down to some little corner if reported at all. Or even all. Houston. Yeah, you would have read it in your local newspaper, and it would you would have said to your per- person at work, "Man, that's a stinker." I have family there, but you wouldn't have felt like, do I need to go get canned goods? But even uh, a fairly isolated incident where there's no media around, there's, you'd say, didn't anybody whip out their 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 phone and take a video of this or yes. take a snapshot of it? Now we expect it to happen, and all of this this is not only like, oh, we can see it. But it's recorded, has potential for doing all that. We have so much information around us. We're not, we're not capable at this point of. It's also new. We're not, we don't have a figure. We haven't figured out a way to deal with it. So look, so I think that's a well said. And I'll just want to add one other basic element of the human condition at my very now old but well-built age. <laughs> I'm done with that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm write that down. It's um, well-built, hyphenated. I just want to say I'm not a print journalist. Never mind. But, <laughs> I, have the, I have the body for radio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so look, the, um, the, the, I want to add one other thing that over you know, the years of my life, now at, at the half-century mark, I've come to appreciate, which is we have limited neurological resources. And at some point when things get complicated, we we pare them down because we can't afford the complexity. So in addition to sort of the psychological piece, um, and it's hard to you know differentiate psychological from mechanical, but there is a basic intellectual resource management tool that we need. It's like when you turn to your kids in the back seat and they've been fighting for a while, and at some point you say, I don't care what it was about. You're both wrong. Be quiet. Next person who talks doesn't eat for a month, (laughs) you know, doesn't get dessert. And so I think at some level we're doing resource management where we go, look, I'm going to choose this pundit to listen to or this conclusion about Obamacare because I can't go through 1,100 pages. Well, that's true. It's always been true. It remains true today. I think we have to understand that in your your middle aged, uh, mid aged, um, excuse me, I'll say your mid aged, well built body has a mid aged, well built brain. See, that's validation, my friend. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> oh darn, validated. Um, that 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 the world you grew up in, which fed your brain is a much different world than today. Yeah. I used to be amazed at the video games that my children played as teenagers because they had many, many levels and they had many things going on. They're only more complex today. Our brains are so elastic. Our brains are so... They're constantly being built. They're the only part of our well-built or not-so-well-built bodies yep. that actually get better every day of our lives if we use them. So... I submit to you that these kids that are growing up in it may have, we don't know yet what's going to happen, but they're not going to react to it the same way you and I might react. Well, certainly you have to say, and again, I, I really am being sincere here. This is not the New York Times reporter. This is just a human being saying it is not working right now. Um, no, I, it's I mean, not. I, I, something's not working. And I do think. Be, I, I am generally optimistic, and I like your point from this standpoint. 
we have gotten ahead of ourselves with technology in many realms. Industrialization of food, terrific. We can now concentrate on other things. I'm speaking with New York Times science and technology journalist Matt Richtel. We're talking about many things, including his latest novel, Dead on Arrival. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation, Biotech Nation, and Tech Nation Health are available at iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the use of drones in healthcare. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with New York Times journalist Matt Richtel. He's here with his latest novel, Dead on Arrival. Something's not working, and I do think be, I, I am generally optimistic, and I like your point from this standpoint. We have gotten ahead of ourselves with technology in many realms. Industrialization of food, terrific. We can now concentrate on other things, but in the same breath, industrialization of food led to Doritos, which gives you the kind of sugar and fat your body really can't afford without having worked for it. And it's led to epic diabetes and obesity. Similarly, look, cars, the first time they were introduced, there were tens of thousands or more than 10,000 people killed immediately. It's a wonderful form of transportation but it exceeded our capacity to attend to the road while driving it. Right. And that's what's happened with our devices right now. But we have learned and we are learning. And the question is, how long will it take us to learn this one simple thing, Moira? But there's a fight for our attention. Yep. And we have not figured out how to guard and protect it the way that we are learning to guard and protect say, our microbiome from foodstuffs, artificial foodstuffs, or our roadways from drunk driving, and we're still fighting that, but we've gotten better. 
we're not even near learning how to protect our attention. Well, I think it's more than attention. Um, I think that I think that that's the source of it. I think that's part of it. Certainly, uh, everyone's trying to get our attention. Every every uh, internet source is trying to get our attention. It's all there. We're about trying attention. to get people's attention right now. Exactly. Yes. And um, so drive carefully, <laughs> whoever you wherever you are. Drive very very carefully, mindfully, mindfully here. Um, this is about how much information can go through you but you can't retain? How much information uh, can you knit together? I'm going to give you an example that is sort of between the many of the descriptions you have as a little last millennium, you know, about those kind of problems and their solutions compared to what's happened since we hit the year 2000, all this information and connectedness. And that is that um, everybody wants to get degrees sooner. We've taken a standard MBA, uh, for instance, which would take you two years and you couldn't work and you'd have to take all of this. And then it went down to one year and then you could still work. And, it, and then I, I was talking to someone the other day, <laughs> a very high-ranking university official who suggested that I could take a highly technical course and instead of teaching it, you know, an hour, hour and a half at a shot, and, you know, why don't you just teach it for eight straight hours on Saturday? And, Oof. you know, in, 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 two, in, in, in two weeks or a week and a half, you just have it all done. And I had to sit down and explain how you have to give your brain this time to knit it together, to practice, to bring it back. And, you know, and that's... And that's true of almost anything. It just happened to be a technology thing we were discussing. And I said, I absolutely cannot even advise you to do such a thing. We have to respect what it takes to integrate, to remember, and, and, and what that means. I mean, I remember John Stewart saying on The Daily Show, you know, every day he reads a book in the morning and he interviews the guy in the afternoon. And that day he is the expert on all that. And then he realizes the next morning he can't remember anything. Yeah. You and know, he, so. he's a slightly a freak in terms of being able to <laughs> process things like that. But look, there's lots of science to back up what you're saying. Yeah. And so we, we have to put more than just our attention. It's like, what is it we need to, to understand, to remember? How do we use this to help us navigate through the life that we have now that just plain ain't going away. Yeah. I mean, we need boundaries and we need time to synthesize. And I'll just give you an example of the value proposition that's off right now. So you take um, companies like Google, Facebook, KQED, the New York Times, go down the list we're all in the business. I know you. I know you don't want to simplify it to attention, but I'll just for the sake. We will. <laughs> but no, we we don't have to. But I just want to give this value proposition that's that's a little bit that goes to the point of what you're saying. I hope we are amassing collectively as technology or media companies people's attention, and we are profiting from it. And and as we do so, there's an ocean of attention, and that ocean means a lot to us. As companies, for Facebook, the more they get, for Twitter, the more they get, the more they profit. I mean, it's a simplification, but it's true. By contrast, Moira, each of those drops in that ocean, each individual drop doesn't mean that much to Google, but each individual drop means a mountain to the rest of us. What I mean is, if Matt Richtel, if I can speak of myself in the third person, is in a car and I take a drop of attention 
and I give it to Google at the moment I'm taking a right turn, I can kill somebody. For Google, there's a mismatch between its want for my attention at a moment and how valuable that insignificant little moment is to a life, mine or someone else's. And the reason I'm stitching this together with synthesis is if I give my attention every time I'm in line at the checkout aisle to Facebook, to Google, to whatever, that profits them a little bit in that big ocean, but it steals from me the moments to synthesize. So when are we going to learn? I'm asking this rhetorically because I don't know. When are we going to learn how much we can afford to give without sacrificing milliseconds that mean the world to us and very little to them? Well, I think that's a really good good synthesis of it. And I think that that part of it was that I was taking attention at a different level. Okay. I was taking it to the person giving the attention to something. Yes. But these organizations um, are seeking attention. You know, that's their lifeblood. No attention, no audience, no nothing's going to work out here. You have attention not just when you're looking at the device or listening to what's on the radio or anything like that, you've got attention as long as you're awake. Yes. You Whether you're eating, you're talking with someone, you're talking with your children, your parents, you're doing whatever you're doing. Your engagement with life yes. includes this attention. Yes. And you have to decide. Yes. One of my grandchildren, is we're big buddies, and one of the reasons we're big buddies is that when I'm with him, I'm with him. Yeah. He knows that, even though we never talk about it. So it's not like, well, I'll yeah, I'll watch him. I'll make sure he's okay. By the way, whatever. by the way, grandparents who have different skill skill sets and the ones that do what you do are cherished by the grandkids. They can tell the difference between all in and partly there. So play that out over the course of society, and uh, that's a powerful thought. Yeah, and then we have kids. They're going through life, and there's everybody. Everybody's got their cell phone. Everybody's got their tablet. Everybody's got their computer, and like everybody's got the normal things in life to do. If you actually just give them some, undo, you know, devoted one hundred percent attention, even though you've got all this other stuff to do, you're going to give them this attention. It's cherished human time for them. We all want that. Yes, and it still begs the question, which is, how are we going to make our decisions about how much is enough? We don't understand yet in the same way that we didn't understand how many French fries were good for us. I don't think we have a rule for the road, a way of determining what's good, what's enough. And part of the reason we don't know is it's so individualized. I mean... Unlike French fries, I'm not picking on French fries. <laughs> Freedom fries? Do you remember this? No, no, they're French fries. <laughs> Let's say trans fats. Not good. It doesn't matter who you are. You're going to get cardiovascular disease. But there are some people who are going to say, my life is very rich playing video games 24 hours a day. And I don't know that anyone can tell them that they're right or wrong. And other people are going to say, I want to walk in the mountains <laughs> And this is my choice. Okay, we're, here's here's where we go. I always said there's this innovation cascade, and it starts with either new technology or a new use to an existing technology. We just never used it that way before. First thing, oh, here it is, the new technology or the new use. The second thing that happens is you get adopters, 
Maybe you get one or two, nobody really cares. You get a bunch. All of a sudden, society jumps in and goes, hey, now we got to... We have to, you know, decide what do we do. We know uh, we, we don't go to church on Sunday and start looking at our email in the middle of a sermon. You know, that would be bad. You know, it's just social rules and social experience with the new technology. Then after a while, we decide two things. It's so bad we have to make a law about it, or it's so good everybody's got to have a very little bitty space for these laws. This happens Time after time after time. We are in a sea of new innovations that not only are new innovations, but can be distributed globally in a day. Well, look, and let me me say something about the innovations that I find really interesting, and it applies to a bunch of different areas. Medicine, technology, but just in the case of technology, over the last millennia, the human understanding has started to build on itself at a furious pace. And what's beginning to happen is we're beginning to exceed the capacity of the human brain to keep up with some of this stuff. And if you want to go back in time, I mentioned the car example. Look, it's hard to pay attention while you're behind the wheel of a car and you're driving a missile and people die. But we're dealing with stuff now in the technology that you use in your phone that is playing to the deepest neurological and social wirings that you've got. And so... Our capacity to keep up is threatening our ability in the short term to come up with the kinds of solutions that you're describing. We are being hacked in a certain way or overtaken or hijacked with this stuff. So let me just, I, I see you, if you I'm guys thinking, could see, thinking, if you well, could see her, she's either thinking or rolling her <laughs> eyes at me. But look, let me, let me tie it back. Let me tie it back um, a little bit ham-fistedly, but this is not my ahead, attention to the book, but also to the partisanship. There's an extent to which we are finding ourselves in little isolated reality silos. And it goes back to the partisanship question where here we are spun up and stimulated by our devices, looking for some place to land, and then almost in these chambers, these virtual chambers that get created, a kind of catatonia that isolates us even at the very moment that it connects us. And so I think that goes in part to the fact that we have we have created stuff that is taking advantage of parts of our brains and bodies at a level we can't quite keep up with. Well, I agree with that. And I think the first thing is that... How is that for a bad segue back to my book? (laughs) Well, I got another book I want to talk to you about. But at any rate, (laughs) before we get out of here. But but here's what I'm... Here's here's the thing, that um, we were kind of sold coming into this Internet. Yes. That this was going to be all this information and all that we could connect together and we would all be kumbaya. This would be great. This was the idea. The people who invented technology can never predict how it will be used. Nobody saw what we were doing today. Nobody saw the fear on a person's face when they realized that they left their phone on the plane or in the rent a car or just at home and they're going to work. They just turn right around and go, oh my God, I don't have my phone. I don't what am I going to do? I don't have my phone. This is not something they experienced, you know, not that long ago. No, this, and, was, this was a platonic yeah. ideal. Yeah, this is a platonic ideal. So the whole idea, this is no problem, kumbaya, I'll just talk to the person next to me. No, uh-uh. You know, people, all ha- all these things are changing. And so it I doesn't upset me when, uh, I'm used to this when, 
This is the way we thought it was going to be. It's not the way it is. Right. When somebody says to me, as you just said, well, how long is it going to take us? Maybe we're beyond the limits. Maybe we're, you know, and it's like, yeah, maybe we are. How long is it going to be, take us? I don't know. But, you know, people go for survival. Yeah. And they, and I trust that because humans want to survive, one by one, we're going to start figuring so, it so out. So do I, by the way. I'm 100% with you. I just don't think, I don't think we're, we're close to but, it yet. But, but what was that cascade I talked about, that innovation cascade? We can't figure out the impact of the technology until a whole bunch of people have used it. It didn't say, okay, great, I'm going to design this technology, and before we let it out, I'm going to decide, figure out the impact, right. and I'm going to actually figure out what the laws ought to be. Right. It doesn't work that way. So to go back to my very early point, where I didn't answer the question the way you wanted it to, <laughs> who's interviewing you here? <laughs> my, You are like, what's the most important and the most powerful and the strongest? And my answer to you was, well, I think things are more complex. Yeah. And I think this is So do you want a chance complex. to redo the answer the way I wanted? <laughs> no. No, why don't you just tell me what you want my answer to be and no, I'll I'm say just... I'll go along with that. But I mean that's just it. We live in a far more complex world and not only are these little waves or big waves, constant waves of innovation breaking over us personally. But we're constantly learning how to use them. We're constantly learning what it means in our lives and what we can allow and not allow. And I think what we have to do is not only figure out the rules of the road, but get used to the fact that we have to constantly figure out rules of the world, world road. And I believe we will get better at it because we'll see it as a skill for this millennium. A skill. And then let me add to that. And we and we now have new tools to help us. I mean, look, this is not a like anti what? well things on your phone that that you, let that you, get you attention to let you <laughs> No, 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 no. Sorry. Yeah. No. <laughs> yes. Uh my book, for instance. <laughs> In my book, I don't talk about, but I'd like to talk about now. I like that part no, no. of it, man. No, no, look, look, I mean, I really do think here I am in San Francisco for the New York Times. I can work in a place that is very comfortable for me, where my wife has a job that is very comfortable for her. Um, I'm 3,000 miles away from my bosses, but I'm getting work done using technology that is permitting an incredibly rich lifestyle. Um, living in a great town. Living in a great town. But look, thanks to technology. Well, let me leave this. I was going to say we, we're doing this interview, but it's actually not a good example. The better examples are where the tools create slaves for us. I mean, somebody told me the other day, This my wife told me she heard a wonderful stat. I think it was on NPR that we live 10 times better, some astronomically level better than Rockefeller ever lived thanks to the machines we have. I mean, I think if we put these tools to use and use them judiciously, we have bought ourselves a, 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 an historical version of Valhalla, the likes of which we've never had. So I don't, you know, please don't take this wrong. This is hardly black and white. In fact, arguably, it, it can be golden. And these tools are going to emerge for us. And some of the innovation is going to let us do that, but it's going in the face of a lot of forces right now. And I just want to go back to what your senior academician told yes. you. Look, that's a really interesting example from this standpoint. 
the argument in there is, in effect, technology or the time or the era lets you do even more. So, Moira, you should do even more. And that is a very powerful competitive um, spirit that runs through our world. And and so when we make the choices to use the tools to check out or do whatever, we're going to have to make those choices in the face of some very strong human urgings. And then I say, and it still takes nine months to have a baby. <laughs> well, I thought you could do it in... I, you know, I just, as a man, did I thought, you read it sounds, that in the New York Times? It's like, <laughs> well, the New York, the new fake news, <laughs> the new fake news. You can have a baby in four months. Okay, <laughs> I'm with you there now. Now, I I do want to ask you uh, one thing: is you wrote another book this year? You published, you published your first children's book oh, yes. called Runaway Booger. I did. Did you really have to include that booger glossary? That, really? Uh, uh, listen. I wish I could take credit for it. <laughs> Lee Wildish, who's an amazing illustrator, sent that in on his own. Clearly, he's got ish. T- Clearly, he has tissues. Oh, <laughs> that's all new. Uh, I know it's super gross, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I, like look, I've got it's a perfect for a certain age of child. You, you're clearly a parent. <laughs> I've got a very aggressive muse. She wanted me to write about boogers, and in a way that rhymes no less. And you know what else, Moira? I wrote a song. You wrote a song. I wrote a song. I performed it, and it got on the radio. It's called Don't Pick Your Nose. And I was driving in Colorado, listening to to Kids Place Live with my kids. And all of a sudden, the kids said, Daddy, is that you? <laughs> and I was singing song? Don't Pick, Pick Your, Your Nose. Nose. I'll tell you, Matt, you are a man of many, many talents. <laughs> I don't know if talents is the word you're looking I'm for. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> I hope you come back, see us anytime, will you? Oh, thank you. That's great. My guest today is Matt Richtel, a journalist with the New York Times. He covers science, technology, and business. He's won a Pulitzer Prize for his series on distracted driving, resulting from the use of cell phones, computers, and other technologies. And he's also a novelist. He's here today with his latest, Dead on Arrival. It's published by William Morrow, an imprint of HarperCollins. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today, our chief correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, talks about drones and healthcare. Are they real or are they science fiction? Look up in the sky, it's a <laughs> bird, it's a plane, it's a, it's a healthcare drone. Um, sure, I, I think drones are a great example of this theme of convergent exponential technologies. You know, uh, 10 years ago, it would have been a million dollars to get a little, what is a $50 drone you can buy from from your local electronics store. And what's been fascinating is it's only been about six years since the first concept uh, was launched of using a drone to deliver medical devices and supplies. It happened uh, at a Singularity University where I chair the medicine track and a student team there at our Global Solutions Program was looking at the pro- problem of 
many parts of the world, rainy season, disasters. How do you get medical supplies to folks? You need helicopters or other elements. And they thought, well, these drones are getting faster, cheaper, more more abilities. What if we loaded medical packages on them? Maybe starting with a little uh, two-pound medical kit. But now with the fast-paced emergence of drone technology, those drones have gotten more and more capable. And this company called Matternet has now proven that out, first in Haiti, delivering little supplies, now in Africa and other places. And we're seeing this emergence of drones being able to be uh, potentially a key part of the supply chain across healthcare, uh, not just in emergencies and disasters and, and developing world, but potentially here in, in the U.S. as well. Well, if we're talking disaster in the emerging world, we don't worry about regulation. We're talking about here in the United States, and we're talking about let's just do this routinely. Now we're talking regulation. Of course, the the FCC, the FAA, every three letter acronym, Everybody the FDA. <laughs> everyone's going to be involved in this, and for good reason. You don't want drones falling out of the sky uh, and 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 running over your uh, running of your dog in the lawn. Um, but we do need to think smart ways to enable some technologies to emerge. And the FAA is looking at how we smartly regulate these. You go across the border to Canada or to Europe, and the regulations are less. So companies like Amazon do a lot of deliveries. They're now working outside of the U.S. to prototype, prove safety, not just the drones themselves, but the software, the systems, the GPS. How do you deconflict these flying objects? Do they fly just down street lines? Lots of issues and challenges, some of which are less urgent, if, let's say, if you're in rural Tanzania, where there's very few roads and a big unmet need to deliver an emergency blood supply or vaccine or to bring back a blood sample from a, a child in a clinic in a rural area. And you said they're doing this outside the U.S.? So some of the most well-known companies, and there's only a few that are really pioneering this, um, one of them called Matternet, which was born out of Singularity University. They're even partnering now with Daimler Chrysler to put their drones in the delivery vans that they can do that last mile delivery, you know, in the neighborhood. Uh, and they're now even pioneered in the last few months in, in um, Switzerland, in Geneva, to deliver between hospitals uh, cold chain products that need to stay cold. It could be just a blood sample, but maybe in the future, an organ uh, that needs to be transferred between an organ donor and to a clinic for the transplantation or the, or the operating room. In Africa recently, there's a company called Zipline Medical, and they've developed small little uh, drones, less drone, more airplane, that can then drop off packages. Uh, and they've been pioneering that now in initially about a dozen clinics, now moving to uh, over a thousand clinics, which will reach a million lives there to deliver emergency supplies like blood products or a medical device, or in some cases to do pickups of a diagnostic. Uh, it might be a blood sample, a urine sample, uh, and beyond. And so we're really seeing in the last three years this explosion, this exponential ability for drones to connect the dots, the software layers, and the unmet needs meeting the technology. We don't think in the United States of those kind of disasters, but boy, we have them. I remember in San Francisco after the Loma Prieta earthquake and the Bay Bridge, it went out. You know, it was like, that was it. Nothing's getting across. And people who wanted to go to the East Bay had to go up over the Golden Gate Bridge. We had no power or anything and come back down and nobody really knew what was going on. If you had to move anyone or anything from one point to another, you were out of luck. And that doesn't need to be just after an earthquake. You maybe have an accident on a remote road driving up to Lake Tahoe or be hiking in the in the in, in the redwoods or uh, and get lost, have an accident, and maybe I predict there'll be companies where you can press a button on your phone, it'll be the Uber drone healthcare service and it's gonna come drop off your emergency medical supplies. Or as is developing now, there are drone ambulances uh, under development which will literally pick up a whole passenger. So like 
a microhelicopter that can land very safely in a small area. Um, so the Israelis are developing these, the Chinese and others, not just for transporting folks. There will be Uber taxis that are drones, but also for emergency evacuation. So literally, I think we're going to be enabling not just the pizza and uh, coffee delivery through drone, but medical supplies uh, anywhere you might have access to an Internet signal. One other interesting aspect you might not think about, not just delivering devices and drugs and blood after a disaster, but might be food. So there's a company uh, founded by a gentleman named Nigel Gifford, uh, which has developed this Pounce sort of UAV drone that can deliver food. Um, it's sort of hollowed out. It can deliver food packages. And then the the actual drone itself is made out of some secret compound that is edible as well. So you can literally eat the drone and the packages inside. So it might be in a war situation like in Syria. It may be uh, after a disaster or in a, in a famine issue. Uh, drones may be part of that supply chain. Um, even in the U.S., uh, you, again, we're seeing Amazon uh, look at drones for delivery. And Amazon, by the way, recently sounds like they're getting into the pharmaceutical business, pharma delivery potentially. Uh, there was a company in San Francisco called Quickie that wanted to deliver drugs from your pharmacy by drone. You know, we're here in, in San Francisco, so the joke is, you know, not sure what kind of drugs they might be delivering. But the idea of push-button sort of access through these sorts of technologies is quickly emerging. And I think will be part of our sort of more interconnected, seamless healthcare systems around the world in the near future. So Amazon bought Quickie? Amazon, I think Quickie was one of the examples. They were a little too early. The, the uh, FCC and, F, and, and FAA regulations are not yet allowing these sorts of uh, things to happen yet in the U.S. But I think uh, my prediction would be in 5, 10 years, we'll see a lot of things come uh, come through the air. Again, it may be that last mile. The, the UPS van comes to your neighborhood and the drone does the delivery to your front step. Um, and again, as it's not just the drone itself, it's the whole systems that lie on top, the software, the AI, the machine learning, the crowdsourcing, so that we can build smart, integrated systems that learn and grow um, and do uh, both safe and effective and, and, and cost reduction uh, across healthcare as well. Well, Daniel, thank you so much. Thanks, Mara. Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent of Tech Nation Health and the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.